0: You're listening to Designing the Revolution. Um, This is chapter 23, The Sociology of Revolution, part 1. Right, so I'm not quite sure how long this chapter is going to take, so I'm going to split it in two bits, uh, partially, dare I say, because I'm going to my birthday party in about 35 minutes. (laughs) So uh, let's see how we get on all right so we're about to embark on this joint journey as it were into this project of regime change um, as we look forward as you might say to the collapse of the carbon regime and this is a specific project you know in the 2020s maybe in the 2030s maybe sooner than we think who knows but it's coming Um And in the last chapter, I tried to sort of cheer you up a bit because you're probably feeling a bit nervous about it and say, look, this sort of thing happens all the time. Regimes collapse. This is why they collapse. They have contradictions. They get into irrational herding behavior. Um, They get into debt. They get into sort of collective stupidity cycles and all the rest of it. And you can see this, you know, in spades at the present moment with the neoliberal regime. So in this uh, in this chapter, in these two parts of this chapter, what I want to do is again prepare the ground a little bit by looking at what I think is is a crucial uh, literature, which is the sociology of revolution or historical sociology. So if you're not that familiar with this sort of literature, basically it's different to history in the sense that that. What historical sociology does is it looks at historical episodes, but it tries to look more systematically at patterns of causality. You know, this causes this. And, you know, you look at another period 20 years later, you can see the same patterns of causality and patterns of of, of, of narratives that appear. And it's useful, of course, because then it enables you to give predictions of patterns in in the present day and in in the future not absolutely of course you know this is not you know car engines but again there's a nuance here which is which is it gives you a sense of how things work out and the other thing about this is that Historical sociology, in so much as it tries to be social scientific, tends to undermine the ideologies of the present moment. And we've had this ideology for a good 200 years now, which is there's a left and there's a right. And all the different pluralities of social conditions get sort of slotted into these two camps. Now, I'm not you know as usual I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater I'm not saying the left right division doesn't have some you know analytical usefulness obviously it does but there's a lot more sort of games out there as you might say orientations which we need to attend to and in some ways these are more important or at least broaden our understanding of historical processes and how revolutionary and uprising processes happen and it gives us a you know, arguably, this is what I hope, it gives us a greater analytical intelligence in actually going, okay, how are we going to proactively create this? What's the agenda? What are we focusing on? What are the tendencies we can learn from history? Um, so, one of the key things that um, the sociology... Of revolution shows or historical sociology shows in, in in my interpretation at least is that materialist reductionism is a very vulgar and outdated way of looking at history and historical sociology so sorry about the long words but materialist reductionism mean, means that there's stuff and the stuff relates to each other in a mechanical way and it and it deterministically produces certain outcomes. Certain outcomes are inevitable in some sort of broad, overriding, metaphysical way. So we sort of touched on this idea of vulgar Marxism, which is, you know, the revolution is definitely going to come, contradictions in capitalism. It's like top-level, broad analysis, and historical sociology is saying no, right? If you look, you know, at the... If we look at the actual weeds, as it were, of of history, we see ecologies of connection. So not materialist reductionism, ecologies of connection. In other words, there's loads of different groups, there's loads of interactions, it's not deterministic, it's complex, and yes, there's variations on general themes, but we need to be have a more sophisticated analysis. Yes, there's the left and the right, but there's other there's other fractures in society, there's other mass psychologies, you know, uh traditions, com- confrontations. And um um and the, these change through, throughout history in different historical periods and there's different fractures in society come to the fore so for instance you know before the french revolution there wasn't a left or a right you know the left and right hasn't been widows forever it's not an a historical category it's something that emerged uh, after the french revolution and obviously has been quite dominant according to the Uh, the present political regime how it likes to describe itself okay so I want to sort of draw out a little complication here which is going to be quite important when we start designing our strategy and that is that revolutions you know the profound sort of um, challenging point I want to make is the relationship between revolutions and conservatism so you know the average person watching these uh, episodes will be going conservatism bad revolution radical and good right no it's like in the historical record conservatism as a defined as wanting social conditions to stay the same has arguably been as much as a motivator to engage in uprising revolutions as the desire to change everything which is quite a transgressive idea right progressive orthodoxy as you might say so let me give you an example in the early 19th century let's say take the 1830 uh, revolution in france or even the 1848 revolution in france what you see there is two groups in an alliance of convenience both of which are fighting against the autocratic reactionary regime of you know um, emperors and all this sort of business and the two groups are Broadly speaking, the artisan class. Now, the artisan class, the guild class, they don't want capitalism. What they want is, is to stick, states, keep things the same, you know, price fixing, you know, uh, apprentice s- systems, very little role for, for the free market. And the reason for that is they want to keep things the same because they're sort of doing okay and they're threatened by all this modernity business and, you know, industrial capitalism. But, of course, they hate the autocrats because they're always, you know, taxing them and all the rest of it. And then they're in alliance with what you might call the prototypical capitalist class, which is just emerging at this time, saying, we want free trade, we want open economy, we want industrialisation, we want to, you know destroy communities if needs be and in this great you know forward striding of materialistic history and everyone's going to be better off except they're not really because the rich are going to take all the money and there's going to be these massive losers as it were as always is in rapid economic change so you can see these have got these two groups of very different agendas one is radical forward-looking one is conservative backward-looking and you can argue which one is left and which is one is right you know the whole thing gets a little bit confused but what the point is here is 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 this makes the whole situation a lot more complex, doesn't it? It's like, okay, so you're trying to build uh, uh bringing people together who, according to to a certain ideologies, uh, have very little in common except they do because they're fighting against this common enemy, as you might say. so you can see this happening at the present moment, right again, these patterns of history um repeat themselves so over the last 30 40 years for the sake of argument you have this what, what some sometimes called is the old Fordist system you know mass trade unions mass industrialization uh not much international trade um well-paid workers relative to to the rest of the population not too much social inequality but these big blocks big political parties big Big uh, industries, big trade unions, and, and what have you. So people join these 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 things, and then you've got this neoliberal project coming in in the late nineteen seventies. 1980s which is saying no 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 we're going to break all this up we want this post-Fordist orientation you know not great big factories with making you know a million cars a day we've got you know buying the parts in from China and we've got this international economy and you know we're exporting jobs and we're undermining the western working class and you know but it's the forward it's the forward striding of deterministic history you can see the same rationales that were happening in the early 19th century so what this, what the, the upshot of of this is, this notion of there isn't an objective left and right, which as a grid goes on to different social groups in society. You know that group is going to be left wing, that group's going to be right wing. It's a lot more complex than that. That group's going to be part of the revolution. That group isn't. No, it's there's there's an intrinsic fluidity, and and. <coughs> And when you're appealing to these groups, you're using notions that could be appropriated by the left or the right. So you think about concepts such as decency, hard work, community. These are words and values which, it's not all, it's not absolutely particularly clear whether they're left wing values or right wing values. But what we do know is, for much of the population, arguably the majority of the population. These are the three main values, decency, hard work, you know, community responsibility. So in other words, like a revolutionary project is up for grabs historically. Um, It depends on what the revolutionary strategy is. Do you go, we're not going to talk to that group because we don't like them? Or are you going to go, oh, no, let's go and talk to them. Let's try and, uh, you know, appropriate their their values, as as you might say, for this collective project. So examples about how this can go just quickly is is um the artisan class in the 1920s late 1920s 1930s uh, the lower middle class in other words of germany they historically have been quite progressive you know they might support liberalism or even socialism but they because of the nazi strategy you know uh, the the Nazi uh, project basically appropriated support from the lower middle class because they were threatened by industrial capitalism and they thought the Nazis were going to, you know, um, bring them back to true German values. Let's put it like that. Obviously, they made something of a mistake. Let's put it like that. But you can see how it wasn't immediately obvious which way these people were going to jump, um, and then paradoxically in 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 Russia in the late 19th century the peasants you know they all loved the tsar they were traditionalist they were they were conservative you know with a small c but they moved to the radical left like the far left by 1905 1914 because the revolutionary strategy went out and converted as you might say this class to the revolutionary cause saying the is never going to look out after you you know he's going to continue to oppress you the whole capitalist situation is crap and you want to become left revolutionaries and so they did so again there's not you know this is many many examples where historical determinism doesn't make any sense there's this agency there's this fluid fluidity in the social space uh, and obviously this is an inconvenient truth as it were to all the left defeatists all these determinists who are going there's no way you know people are going to rise up against neoliberalism because it appeals to people's you know self-interest and everyone's selfish you know it's very convenient just means you don't have to do anything and just sit there in your relative privilege while you know people that are having a really hard time aren't organized properly Um, so what I want to do is just look fairly quickly and we'll look at this more at this notion of left popularism which has grown out of this historical sociology which is saying what we can do is construct the people so this is going to be a key concept i'm not personally that mad about it because construction is a bit of a mechanical sort of phrase rather use a more organic word but you know leaving that aside the construction of the people what this key concept means is it builds upon this idea that you've got this social fluidity you know these different groups they could be on the left they could be on the right they could be reactionary they could be revolutionary it all depends on on the agency of the of the revolutionary project in other words how you appropriate them how you approach them how you engage with them do you do you uh, uh, say oh we're not going to talk to that group and such and such like so part, part of the strategy here, and we'll talk about this a lot more, is about understanding those values of those groups and, and supporting those values and ar- making the argument, as it were, that those values lead to le- a left-wing revolutionary proposition, decency, hard work, community. The whole system is against this, so come with us and we're going to overthrow that system. So the other aspect of this left popularist strategy disconstruction of the people is the engaging contestation passion emotion uh, confrontation transgression and this has echoes of course of what we've been saying in the action chapters on civil disobedience and uh, running campaigns is what what animates people what creates fluidity is this this sphere of of debate and uh upset as it were in in the social space people talking about it are they good guys are they bad guys and you have this this possibility to build this new alliance this new people this new majority that's going to engage in in structural political change that's the theory and you can see that this theory is is based upon this historical sociology saying there aren't set left-wing forces and set right-wing forces You know, obviously, again, you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, has a certain logic to it, but it's massively complicated by the historical record and it's massively complicated in modern complex society where people don't have fixed allegiances. If anything, their main allegiance is to be opposed to the political class, as we're increasingly aware, that the, the division is between the political class and the popularist mass as you might say the popularist like ecology of of different groups who haven't been able to connect together because of cultural blocks but well, these cultural blocks can be over overcome through sophisticated strategies of bringing people together engaging in sociability and certain such like so the point here is this 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 sociology of revolution this historical sociology of political change is a lot more optimistic, as you might say, about how political change works. Because the implicit assumption of the neoliberal left-defeated paradigm is there's no such thing as history, right, the end of history. It assumes that things are set. You know, you can't bring down the government in twos. This is just ridiculous. Nothing really happens. We're waiting for things outside our control to happen. And then, you know, if we're lucky, we have some agencies no 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 it's like there's massive amounts of agency if people like look objectively as you might say at the historical record and you can see how people in history over and over again through their passion dedication and intelligence basically overcome the powers that are supposedly all- almighty uh, and and indestructible so the last few comments on this this slightly short chapter <laughs> is as, as follows which is there's a there's a little bit of a paradox here because or a complication any, anyway because we have been saying on the one port on the one side that there is some determinism here in the sense that the state the carbon state will collapse because of objective uh, exponentially increasing contradictions uh, partially social inequality but more objectively uh, the destruction of the uh, ecosphere and what have you so on the one hand we know that this is coming we know that the elites uh, are completely clueless on this and the reason for it is because as with all degenerating elites they only talk to themselves they're not going to come in and interview me and if they want to interview me you know they're they're going to Wants to talk about my farm or something they're not going to want to entertain the notion that the the systems on its last legs and that they need to exit in all the rest of it in other words this this phenomenon of of uh, hypernormality some people use which is everything's fine everything's fine you know the official situation is we're going to have growth no we didn't get it this year we're going to have it next year no you know we didn't have we haven't had it for a decade but the next decade you know this continual pretense dynamic and everyone knows it's bullshit. This is what hypernormality is. Everything looks normal, but in underneath the surface everyone knows it's bollocks. And this this phrase, you know, refers to the Soviet Union before nineteen eighty nine. All the journalists talk to each other, all the elites around the world talk to each other. There's this notion of the inevitable uh, continuation of the Soviet Union. It's going to be there for generations and, oh, out of nowhere, it collapses. Well, why was that? Because no one was actually asking or anal- analysing how totally fucked off the average Soviet sist- uh, Soviet si- uh, citizen was. In, in actual fact, it was inevitably was going to collapse because, you know, the, the objectivity of the economy was collapsing and you had this fiscal crisis of the state, as they call it all right and then once this once this uh, system collapses of its own accord as much as anything or at least you know it can be proactively pushed as as we're going to be discussing uh, a lot is you've got this fluidity you've got material fluidity you know who gets what power who gets what property who gets what stuff you know what happens to the rich who has that material power and then you have this cultural fluidity who are we what are our belief systems do we still want Christianity do we want you know some other some other sort of religious sort of uh, orientation ideological orientation everything's up up for grabs which provides this enormous agency for the revolutionary vanguard the revolutionary strategy as it were and that's what we're talking about and what we see you know just referring back to this pessimism business is what we see in situations like Greece with Syriza and Podemos is this loss of nerve that people come into power you know and surprise that they come into power and then they And then they don't take full advantage of its revolutionary potential because they've got this cultural lag of left defeatism that they can't actually go against Europe. They can't actually go against the international system because, you know, the country is going to get poorer and people won't put up with that. But what we know from the historical record is people can and do And Come through it because people don't like to be pushed around by the rich or some big international system Um, So obviously there's no guarantee But you see this if you look at the the history of the Syriza episode is this loss of nerve and they basically succumb to the EU placing lots of uh, debt Arrangements on on them when they could have just said go away. We're going to do it ourselves Okay, so um, this is uh, connects with this research by Erica Chenoweth how uh, civil resistance works, uh, which I've referred to, you know, on several occasions. Probably one of the most important social scientific studies of the last generation. And although it's ostensibly around why violence doesn't work, and we're talking about this in a, in part two, the the deeper understanding that this book promotes is this agency. That the activists have the revolutionaries have in in terms of designing a strategy and creating an organizational system a disciplined organizational system that can create new herding dynamics right not the, the the herding dynamics of let's stay in the system even though we know it's fucked but new herding dynamics which is hey we're going to take control and we're going to create this new society and everyone gets sucked into this enthusiasm which you know might be a bit frothy and all the rest of it but it's substantially real in the sense that it can take control quickly and it can appropriate these notions you know these perennial uh, um, notions that could be left or could be right notions of honor decency hard work community and such like Um, and then you get this political renewal dynamic and bringing sociability into the political space and humanizing it And such like so that's the promise right and I'm not saying for a minute this is you know a done deal okay what we're going to design over the next few uh, chapters is how we can maximize the probability of this happening knowing we've got this enormous opportunity coming down the road because this regime is is not going to last okay so dare I say I've got to go to my birthday party (laughs) sociability rules okay and I'm I'll come back with part two and and look at other learnings from the historical sociology. Thanks very much.